0: This is episode number 71 with Ephraim Mattis. Welcome to American Snippets, your source for inspirational, motivational, and selfless stories and interviews from exceptional people across the nation. And now, here's your hosts, Barb Allen and Dave Brown. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the American Snippets podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. My name is Dave Brown, real estate investor, lifestyle entrepreneur, and the co-host here along with my partner, Gold Star Wife, author, speaker... Barbara Allen. And today, we have an incredible story for you. You're not going uh, to believe it. Uh, And it's from our guest, Ephraim Mattis. And a little backstory so you can get some perspective uh, before we get into the interview with Ephraim. Uh, Upon leaving the U.S. Navy in 2017, Ephraim became heavily involved in humanitarian and rescue operations inside northern Iraq against ISIS while volunteering with the humanitarian organization Free Burma Rangers. And on June 2nd, 2017, he was shot. Uh, He was shot by ISIS while conducting a rescue operation in an ISIS-held territory called West Mosul. And this was part of the Free Burma Rangers team. Uh, The team gained international attention when a video of the rescue went viral on the internet. Ephraim is now the author of The City of Death, um, which is published by Hatchet Book Group. And it was written alongside Scott McEwen, who is also the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, American Sniper. A City of Death details Ephraim's harrowing humanitarian journey to Iraq, and we are going to be sharing that exact story with you here today. Currently, Ephraim manages and directs rescue and relief efforts throughout Southeast Asia as part of a White Mountains Research Partnership with Operation Underground Railroad. So, without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with the incredible story from Ephraim Mattis.
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I am your co host, Barb Allen. We talk a lot about at American Snippets about all the extraordinary things people do for our country in service and out of service. And every now and then we get to speak with people who have done both. Today's guest is no exception to the rule, but he is an exception to a lot of rules because his story is like above and beyond any of the stories that we have heard, with the exception maybe of our mutual friend, Hamidi Jassim, who linked us up. We're going to talk about him a little too. We interviewed Hamidi back in episode 21, I think it was. Hamidi, uh calls himself the terrorist whisperer. He is an Iraqi national who became one of our country's greatest intelligence assets there. His story is phenomenal as well, packed with just unbelievable courage and tenacity. And until this day, although I've met a lot of people, I've never met somebody with a story so similarly, almost like just incredible to believe the service uh, and the the mindset that goes forth in them. Ephraim Matos was a Navy SEAL. And uh, when he left the Navy SEALs, he didn't just return back to the civilian world and adjust and get that nine to five job. He took it upon himself to go back to go to Iraq to combat zone as a volunteer with an organization called the Free Burma Rangers. For me, this was my first introduction to that organization. It is so unbelievably extraordinary what these people do. Everybody that Ephraim worked with and talked about in the book is just like like another species of human being, I think, when it comes to courage and service. And Ephraim, I am so excited to have you here today to share your story. And I can't thank you enough for, A, for all you've done and continue to do in your work, and B, for taking the time to sit down and speak with us today.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to serve. Thank you for having me on, I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, so um, our friend Hamity, I, I'm not sure how how you m- met him or, or know him, but uh, he, you clearly know his story as an Iraqi national, and so I found the tie between you guys and what he did. He speaks about the Iraqi National Army in such a different way than you speak about, in, you know, in your book and in your service. I'm so excited to get to all that. Can you take us from the mm-hmm. beginning, though? We're gonna we're gonna rush through. I know you're a Navy SEAL, and we're not gonna spend too much time on that. But I do want to talk a little bit about your background because it's important. You were just 19 years old when you. Uh-
2: Yes, yeah. I was nineteen years old when I when I started going through through yes. Hell Week. But, uh, but I actually enlisted in the Navy when I was seventeen. Yeah. shipped off to boot camp when I was eighteen, and then um, did the the bulk of SEAL training when I was when I was nineteen years old and turned twenty uh, right before graduating.
1: I mean, and as a so SEAL. even before that, I have your book. I'm gonna hold the book up here for the video version of this. People, you know, podcasts won't see, but on YouTube you will be able to see it. Uh, this book, I but blew through it, but I had to go slowly, too, because I wanted to take notes. It's amazing. And so I'm going to ask you a lot of questions that I pull from this book. And Absolutely. In this book, you talk about growing up in Milwaukee in a middle-class mm-hmm. family, and you were in a devout Baptist family. I grew up in a devout Catholic family with strict regulations and rules and policies. And so I really identified with a lot of stuff what you talk about here in terms of their Traditions and protocols and practices. Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of that faith that you were raised in and how it mm-hmm. impacted you and carried you further?
2: Absolutely. So first and foremost, um, I think the morals and values that were instilled in me as a child. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for all of that. So I have to make that abundantly clear because yeah. uh, I don't want I don't want people to think that. Um, you know, that I hate religion or hate God or anything like that. No, I'm actually, I'm I'm actually very grateful for how I grew up. It was a bit strange. um, And I chose to go another route. But so growing up, you know, we were independent fundamental Baptist, um, which, which basically just means that you, uh, you follow sort of the old traditional rules. Girls can't wear pants. Um, You can't go to movie theaters, things like that. And I talk about it in the book City of Death, about 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 a few of those things, you couldn't listen to music with like drum beats in it because that was considered, you know, having sort of like a satanic influence. Mm-hmm. And again, a bit strange, but very well-meaning. And these were really, really good people. But right around the age of 15 or 16, um, I started to question things. Um, and I talk about it in the book where I had a conversation with a, with a teacher at the small Christian school that I was going to. And uh, that sort of opened my eyes to the idea yeah. that, you know, hey, you can – you can still want to do the right thing in life. And that doesn't mean that you have to follow all these different, you know, rules mm-hmm. and, and regulations and things like that. And so that gave me also the opportunity that I could do whatever I wanted to do in life. And that was something I didn't realize growing up. And so when I, when I had that realization, um, I, my, my, my heart and my soul, what I was passionate about was I legitimately just wanted to help people. And that was something that was instilled in me as, as a kid. And so I wanted to help people, and so I figured the best way I could do that was I wanted to go join the military and uh, go go be a SEAL. That's what I that's what I set out to do.
1: Yeah, and and I love that, and I think it is so important, especially with everything going on in this country today, and how religion is sometimes weaponized uh, to, for people's mindsets to be turned or called this or called that. I carried the same thing out of growing up Catholic that you carried out of growing Baptist, where I it, the rules and regulations, the lifestyle, it was not a good fit for me. I I questioned a lot of it and the policies and didn't make sense. But the faith is something I think is so important to, to understand, and I like how you talk about this, that you can extract faith from a religion. And I think there are so many people that have the same tenets of faith, no matter what religion they practice, but mm-hmm. it gets so clouded by the protocol and religion. Like you can't. Yeah, so, absolutely. So I, I just love how you how you mentioned that I've never like read another book where somebody talks about that. And I was like, mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yes. And so
2: I, well, what, <laughs> one comment on that yeah. is, you know, it, it says in the Bible, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but true yeah. religion is, is helping the fatherless and widows. That's what religion is all the rules, all of the, all of the other things that people add in. That's, that's not, that's not in there. That's not what, that's not what being a, a good person is all about. It's about, it's about helping people who, can do nothing for you, the fatherless and widows, as as it says in like the New Testament. So yeah. I think that's that to me is what was what true religion
3: is. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, I love that. And you took that to an extreme. I mean, you pushed through. There were a lot of people in your community and your family that were not happy about you deciding to become a seal. And even at the young age, when a lot of people would kind of buckle under pressure and go this one way, you just found the strength to stick to your convictions and train yourself hard so that you could get through this and then mm-hmm. you were knocked out with stomach flu and all that. I mean I was just so impressed. I'm a mom, right? I have kids who are okay. <laughs> who who are now the age you were when you did all this. And I'm looking Okay. Like, so for me it's like, oh my God, like I, my kid gets the flu and I'm like, oh so, you know, maybe you should sit down on the couch. I'm gonna take care <laughs> of you, all this stuff, right? And you're like, uh-huh. well, I'm gonna go through SEALs training with the flu. I think that's just so extraordinary. Just so cool. <laughs> so you, you know did your time in the SEALs, you served honorably, but that wasn't what you felt called to do specifically for the rest of well, your I, life.
2: I felt I, I wanted to, the reason I joined the military to help people was, you know, I could have, I could have joined the Peace Corps. I could have, right. you know, done other things, but I was like, I wanted to help people in, in combat zones. I want to go to war and I want to help people that nobody else can help. I want to be on the front line going into places where other people can't go and to do things that other people can't do, and so as a SEAL, that was that was the perfect fit for me in, yeah. in one aspect. But on the other aspect, it wasn't. Um, you you have to train so much as a SEAL to maintain that high level, um, that high level of of operational capability. That sometimes it's like it turns into you know being ninety percent training, you know, five percent waiting, and then five percent right. actually doing your job. And so for me, that that ratio just wasn't enough, and I was looking at. Um, I was looking at all the different conflicts and things that were going on around the world. And I thought, well, I can, I can go help these people. You know, our country's going to be okay. We've got plenty of guys holding the line and we absolutely need them. And I, you know, the guys that are still in and they're, and they're still doing what needs to be done to protect our country. And that's fantastic. I just saw other conflicts going on and I thought, you know, I'm just one guy, but I can, I can make a huge difference over there if I just, if I just go over there, you know, and that was, that was my mindset. And so then, when I left the when I left the military last year, early last year, I uh, I met up with these guys called the Free Burma Rangers and flew out to Iraq to uh, what to do what I thought was going to be humanitarian work, but just in a war zone. I thought, right. okay, well, I can carry a weapon and I can you know uh, keep people safe and you know sort of navigate a war zone um, a little bit better maybe than a civilian could. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll go do that. But then it obviously, as you know, in the book, it yeah. things just went completely haywire.
1: Yeah, unbelievable. So can you tell us a little bit, like for me, and I imagine for a lot of people who are going to be listening, your book and your story was my first introduction to the Free Burma Rangers. Mm -hmm. It is, to me, it is just crazy that people like you all are out there doing this. And I'm going to, I mean, there's got to be... Like such a small percentage of Americans even know that you exist or, or mm-hmm. what you do. And I know it's not like for accolades or medals or all that because you sure as hell like, wouldn't be doing volunteer work if that's what you're no. for. But <laughs> but I think it's so important for people to know that you all exist and the work that you do for, for so many reasons. Maybe people can get behind and support it in some way, fashion, send supplies, support, whatever it is. Or maybe there's somebody out there who decides that they're gonna look into this and be the path for them. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about the Free, free Burma Rangers and what? Yes, they Yes,
2: absolutely. Um, so, so first and foremost, I do. Not, I'm not an official representative of of FBR. This right. is just my opinion from my from my small amount of time that I spent with them. So,
3: okay.
2: Uh, FBR Free Burma Rangers were obviously founded in Burma by David Eubank, a former uh, Special Forces officer and ranger, and they've been helping the people inside Burma, uh, the, the the civil war that's been going on there in Burma, otherwise known as Myanmar. Um, They've been helping there for like the last 25 years and doing mostly medical things and getting, um, you know, getting relief teams into these sort of remote areas where the people are being are constantly under attack by their own government. And over the last since since the emergence of ISIS, they were invited to come over and help out with doing some medical stuff in in northern Iraq with the Kurdish with the Kurdish forces. And when they got over there, they ended up just kind of getting involved in more and more and more things. And again, ultimately, it's a, it's a humanitarian organization. It's a humanitarian thing, but it's just the kind of organization where guys are not afraid to be armed and it attracts a lot of the sort of ex-military types. Um, so mm-hmm. when I flew over there, for example, you know, I, I volunteered. None of us are paid. We all had to fly and you know, pay, pay our own way over there. I didn't get a plane ticket. Uh, I had to buy my own gear. Now, uh, but they provide <laughs> David always says, like, I'll provide you um I'll provide you food and maybe shelter. And that's, that's I've pretty read much that. what you get. Yeah. And I wrote
1: that down. I'm like, well, <laughs> with an offer like that. I mean, how can you refuse? How they, can like... you refuse?
2: And <laughs> <Well, laughs> the gun. Actually...
1: Maybe some days you'll have a gun or something. Right? Yeah, maybe <laughs> some days.
2: Yeah, like when I yeah. before I showed up, they're like, I can't guarantee you'll have a gun. And if you have a gun, <laughs> I can't guarantee it's gonna work. Like that was literally the deal yeah. uh before flying out. But that's actually really good though, because mm-hmm. what makes Free Freebummer Rangers so unique is that it's it's a group of guys. And girls who who truly believe in what they're doing, and are willing to sacrifice of their yeah. own you know their own money, their own time, uh, to to go and do these things. And so that's why, when when you're in these situations, if you're only there for the money, guess what? When the bullets start flying, you're gonna take cover, and you're yeah. not gonna go help whoever needs to be helped. But right. if you're there, you're already fully committed.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: you're able to do some more extraordinary things.
1: Yeah, you're that's, all in. So how did you? So it's one thing to hear of the, of this organization and then how did you actually go about linking up with them? Like, who was your point of contact with them? And did you have to like interview with them or were they just like, okay, yeah, you know, what was the process? <laughs>
2: um, well, so it was, it was actually very, it was very streamlined, very, uh, very almost haphazard, if you will. Um, so my, I heard about the group from my brother who had done some humanitarian work around the world and so I knew I was getting out of the Navy and I asked him if he knew there's any groups um, that could use the help of a SEAL that do humanitarian work. And he said, okay, free Rummer Rangers." Anyway, he gave me David Eubank's uh, email. So I emailed okay. David Eubank and he emailed me back. I was like, cool, man, like, come on out and check us out. So I literally just hopped on a plane, flew out to Thailand, That's never sweet. met these people that have no idea where I'm going. I've never been to, you know, Northern Thailand before. And uh, I just sort of get off the plane and I go find these guys and, um, so I, I was there, I met with them, and then they were like, well, we're going into Iraq in a week, you, you know, feel free to fly out there and join us. And I was like, all right, cool, I'll see you guys in a week. It was literally, <laughs> it was pretty much that. But, oh but with that being said, though, I have to, I have to caution, there's, there's yeah. a lot of guys, ever since that rescue video came out, yes. which I'm sure we'll get to later on, as soon as, yeah. as, as soon as that rescue video came out, you know, they're getting 50, uh, 50 messages a day from guys wanting to volunteer, as soon as, as soon as that video comes out, right? Yeah. Well, the, you have to go through sort, some sort of a vetting process. For me, it was a lot more streamlined because of my background as a SEAL, right. there was a sniper. I you know, met with Dave, you know, I was able to speak with him face to face, he you know, got a good sense of me and who I was, and so that's the reason why I was sort of the exception to the rule. But if, if guys wanna go volunteer with FBR, you have to you have to actually submit sort of an application type thing just because so many people want to volunteer now, and you have to go work in Burma before you can go work in any other location.
1: Smart. It's almost like yeah. they've done that before. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they took a risk yeah. on me, uh, but it just ended up being the the right timing and the right fit, and it was it was good. You know, David's former special forces. I was SEAL, so it was just kind of a kind of a natural fit.
1: Yeah, and so the official mission as it was in the book anyway of fbr is to organize and assist in relief efforts so that the men of or, or your mission so that the men of the 36 could care for the people they just liberated that was your right. that was right. like your specific mission in iraq on, on paper it sounds like like those words don't really do it justice to mm-hmm. what what the actual experience was you know it sounds like okay we're going to go support yeah. these people so that you know it sounds like you're like back mm-hmm. here Handing out supplies or something so that they can take yeah. it up, but support well, that, that is means like,
2: yeah, well, absolutely that but, that is that is the mission. Right. That was that's what that's what I thought I was getting into. Right. And but you know that the word support um, has a lot. It's very can, flexible. Well, absolutely, and and I'll tell <laughs> yeah. you what, like when it when it comes down to it, when yeah. the bullets are flying, the chips are down, people's lives are on the line. You want to know what? You're not going. Oh, I'm not going to go help you because my mission is to stay back here and hand out, right. you know, water bottles. No, no, no. Right. You're going to go and do what needs to be done Doing if you have the skills to do so.
1: Yeah, and I mm-hmm. think, I don't remember the exact line that you had in there, but it was something about like how in those situations when you're pushed to the brink, when that's how you rise above your humanity to, to do something more noble. I love that line, and I think that just so accurately portrays what all of you, I mean, every single person that you were over there with is just an unbelievably courageous, strong person that that went and did this from the people that were using themselves as shields to protect Iraqi, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, yeah, so I mean, what was that? Like, you pretty much hit the ground and just went into it. But what you're, you're still a young guy, you know, now, and you were younger than so most people are like going to frat parties or figuring themselves out or getting kicked out of college at this point in time. But, (laughs) you know, you're over in Iraq as a volunteer, and you're Mm -hmm. doing and the way that Uh, You write about this in the book, the human lens that you you provided to a lot of people tell about the experience, but don't necessarily open themselves up to share the emotional side of it Mm -hmm. as well. And I just I so appreciate that you did that. And you had a lot of you went back and forth in the book about David Eubanks, how Mm -hmm. you so look up to him and respect him. And yet sometimes Mm -hmm. you just kind of wanted to throttle him because you're like, what the hell, man? Like you're going to get us. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is that? <laughs> what is your relationship with him? Like now do you stay in touch with him?
2: Oh, absolutely. We have, yeah, we have, we have a fantastic relationship. I absolutely yeah. love David to death. It's, it's one of those deals where you, you get to know somebody so well and you're in such, you know, crazy life and death situations with these people that, yeah, your, your tensions are going to flare. And I, and I wanted, you know, I, yeah. I, I wanted to portray that in the book, the emotional side of what was happening out there, because it's not all just, you know, uh, pixies and fairy dust and roses. Like, no, there's, there's struggle. There's, there's doubt, there's fear, yeah. there's tears, there's terror, and there's you know there's there there's struggle between the individuals on the team. And I wanted to write about that because it's like you know what? Guess what? We, we might disagree on things, or you know maybe we're having a little bit of a tiff here. But at the end of the day, like I'm gonna follow orders, I'm gonna do what I'm told, and we can all still get along and still be friends. And there's no reason for you know it to, it to boil over and for me to lose my temper or anything like that. So yeah, there was a few times that definitely was a little bit. Frustrated, but it's it's that way with any leader. It's yeah. that way with, with anybody. Yeah. And and what's what's great about David though is when you confront him and you're like, hey, Dave, like, what the heck are we doing? Like, what's going on? You know, he will stop, reevaluate, and be like, hey, you're right. If he's if if he you know if, if he realizes that he's wrong, he will be like, hey, like, yeah. I'm wrong. You're right. Okay, right on. You know, and it's good. So there's a lot of there's a lot of humility there. Dave's Dave's a great. Uh, g- Honestly, honestly I can honestly say this yeah. best combat leader I've ever served under.
1: Yeah, like, and I was gonna say, you say that a couple of times. You're like, that's mm-hmm. a leader I will follow. That's yep, a leader I absolutely. will follow. And absolutely. that I think is something so worth noting as well. There's just so many skills and lessons to to be passed down from this mm-hmm. book and all of this. And he and he took his entire family
2: mm-hmm. into that. Yes. Yeah. So he, well, like, not up on the front line, front line, but well, yeah, he brings his. All right. So somebody like me, list.
1: right. I'm sitting at home in my yeah, comfy yeah. thing. Like to me, yeah. that's, that's the front line. Right. So right, um, right. You, Understood. I mean, <laughs> but they're yeah, in so, the city
2: of Mosul. I get it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's one of those deals where that's, that's his family's ministry. That's how they, that's how they help other Easy. people. And, you know, there's a lot of times, um, you know, the kids and, and his wife, they're able to sort of talk with and help people that we kind of can't people, you know, they see a big, big bearded white dude running around with an AK and people, you know, can be a little yeah. bit, you know, afraid of that. Yeah. But then you see, you know, you see like a little 14 year old girl running around, you know, handing out water bottles or whatever. And it, it just drops their stress levels and there's, and they can reach and help people yeah. in, in ways that, you know, that I just simply can't by by carrying a gun. I just can't.
1: Yeah. Right. And I think, um, how you talk about the people of Iraq, is also mm-hmm. so important because I can remember even when all of this broke out. So my husband was in Iraq. My husband was killed in Iraq, um, serving with the military. And I can remember, you know, hearing people back when this all started. You know what? Just nuke the whole fucking country. They're all they're all evil. Like just nuke the country. And it, it's such a casually offered joke and comment. Mm-hmm. Like you know that whole country is infested with this. That whole country is this. And just. Mm-hmm. You know, get rid of them all, right? And so that mm-hmm. is another reason why I think stories like yours are so important, mm-hmm. because it is so easy for us to get so frustrated at what is going on, and why do our men and women keep going over there? Why are our research Why, like, why are our families being obliterate? You know, for this other culture. You know, mm-hmm. so it's so easy to just you know, write that blank check and just lump them all in the same category. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about some of the things about the Iraqi people? You have so many instances in this book. Mm -hmm. We're not going to go through them all. But can you you pick one of those instances or maybe a different one that pops to your mind and just share a story about uh, a couple moments you had with the Iraqi people that kind of stand out in your head that you would like people in this country to know?
2: Wow. Well, yeah. Like you said, <laughs> there's so many stories. Yeah. I think, I think one of the um, one of the biggest stories that that for me that for me comes to mind. And this is a, this is about a uh, you know a, an Iraqi soldier, right? And as you know, like soldiers, they're no they're no different than anybody else. They just they want to go home and have their family and mm-hmm. you know live a peaceful life. And you know it was it was cool. We had this one guy, um, and I talk about it in the book toward the end. A guy named Zuhair, yeah. and uh, he was an Iraqi soldier who continued to push forward and try and rescue people when the rest of the army was just kind of like hanging back, you know, kind of taking their tea breaks and just, they they fight wars very differently than we do. But this guy would always go up and he would always go forward and he would try to rescue people who everyone else had basically written off for dead. And the morning that we got up and did that rescue, he was out there literally crawling out to people on his belly, you know, because otherwise the snipers will shoot him. Um, and it was in the same area where I ended up getting shot and he was, he was, he was crawling out there to rescue wounded people and some of the guys who he rescued, this is, and this is what's telling some of the guys he rescued were ISIS defectors. And he knew that before he went out there to get these people.
0: And that's amazing. That's
2: absolutely amazing. You know, right now in in our country, you know, with the, the political divide right now, we Mm -hmm. can't, we can't get along for anything. We have so much in common. That's a soldier going out there literally risking his life to save the enemy.
1: Yeah.
2: That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's the true face of humanity. That's the true face of, of, of humanity that you're going to find everywhere. Yes, there are problems in Iraq. Yes, there are issues in, these, in a lot of these Middle Eastern countries. Oh, my goodness. They're, they're major problems. Yes. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like they're still human. And they're still willing to go out there and risk their life to save the life of one of their enemies who's, who's, who's given up the fight. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing.
1: Yeah, it really, really is. That struck me too. You talk a lot about forgiveness in, in your story too, and how Mm -hmm. you were able to, so there's, yeah, there's so much, but since you just mentioned it, I want to talk about that video. Um, Mm -hmm. so there is a YouTube video now out there that's gone viral. Um, mm-hmm. and it is, I, I don't, I can't imagine what it must feel like for you to watch this and for your family to watch this. I mean, cause mm-hmm. it's a video of you actually being shot, um, mm-hmm. on a mission. So can you tell us, you know, who, what were the circumstances of that event and who shot that video and, and what is it like to have that out there? I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know how
2: yeah, I would feel a, about having that thing. out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a bizarre thing. So, um, Basically what happened was the morning of June 2nd, 2017, um, we, uh, our, our small, the, the small frontline team of FBR guys, we went down and we saw Zuhair, the Iraqi soldier I talked about before, yep. we went down and helped him move some of these ISIS defectors who were wounded uh, into an ambulance and, and evacuate them. And when we got up there, we were at, we were at the very front of the Iraqi army frontline. We were in front of the frontline. And we came across about a four or five lane, maybe six lane highway. Uh, That was completely rubbled and destroyed. And we saw we saw a couple of bodies. And then we started looking a little bit more. And we realized that there were at the time we thought there were maybe 60 or 70 bodies in the street. But in reality, later on, we discovered there were more than 150 uh, people slaughtered in the street. And the bodies, not to be morbid, but the bodies were fresh. They weren't bloated. They weren't stinking yet. And and, and basically we found out that uh, ISIS had massacred these people um, about 24 hours prior.
1: Wow.
2: And piles of bodies, on, you know, people just laying on top of each other dead, people's heads blown off. The whole – the most – again, I'm not trying to be morbid. No, I'm trying to describe yeah. what we saw. It was yeah, yeah. absolutely awful. Yeah. And, you know, the people who were like in these piles of bodies, it wasn't because ISIS had piled them up on top of each other. It's because they were all running and they all were just dying at the same time just wow. falling on each other. Wow. Anyway, in, in one of these piles of bodies, um, we saw three children still alive and two men still alive. And they're maybe 100 yards away from ISIS headquarters. And ISIS owns the high ground on two sides of where they're at. So they own the flank and they can see down and see these people. And they were they just left them. They just left them to die. These kids, up, the kids yeah. would get up and they'd walk around and they'd, they'd look, they'd search the bodies for food and water and then they'd sit down. And so we're watching this. And of course, I, I you, you grow up in history class and, and, and you and you look at all these black and white photos of Nazi massacres or maybe something about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, you know, and you think, oh, that, I'll never see something like that. that. That's history that used to happen. That doesn't happen anymore. And I, wh- I remember when I saw this, all I could see was the black and white photos of, you know, all these massacres mm-hmm. that I'd seen photos of, you know, during history class. And we knew we had to do something. We knew we had to go in there. And we had to get these kids out. There was no, there was no like, ah, uh, like maybe we're not going to go. There was, we were going to go.
3: Yeah.
2: And long story short, what ended up happening was, um, the American military actually put a drone overhead, saw what was happening and agreed to give us a smoke screen from an artillery unit stationed several miles away. And so this artillery unit started firing, um, um, white phosphorus, um, Rounds that would basically explode in air and then they send a bunch of balls of fire into the street creates a big cloud of smoke and So they they started firing these artillery shells to to sort of blind Isis and then the Iraqis gave us one tank uh, For us to run behind and there were five of us who went out there behind the tank It was David Eubank Sky Barkley a former Marine uh, our Assyrian interpreter uh, named Mahmoud and then a guy from Burma uh, who was there. He was the one filming. Uh, he was there to document human rights abuses and stuff. Okay. And uh, his name, we call him Monkey. Uh, he's from Burma. And uh, I was uh, I was the fifth guy. <clears throat> and we got out behind this tank, and it drove out into the highway. And the rest of us sort of used the tank as cover. But immediately, immediately, op- uh, ISIS opened fire on us with machine guns and mortars. So the machine gun rounds, they, they can't quite see us, but they know that we're there somewhere. Yeah. So they're just spraying these They're just spraying machine gun rounds through the, through the smoke and, you know, bullets are just, you know, impacting at random and we're, you know, right next to the bodies of all these other people who've just been shot by ISIS and we have to, you know, we're like running around their bodies trying to get down the street. So the, the, uh, the, the Iraqi army tank takes off and drives straight toward ISIS position, straight toward ISIS headquarters. And we charge down the street falling right behind them. And I was terrified. I talk about this in the book, city of death. I was absolutely terrified. I, I was literally on the border of going into shock because you're literally charging down a machine gun nest. There's dead people everywhere. You're watching the bullets smack into the ground around you and there's nothing you can do. And then on top of that, they're also dropping mortars behind the tank. And so, you know, I, I watched one, I just watched one blow up like right behind us. None of that was caught on video, but I watched this mortar blow up right behind us. I'm like, this tank doesn't even provide us cover. Anyway, we get down there and, um, by the time we got there in the afternoon, three of the four kids that we had seen alive had died uh, from the heat. Uh, they would basically um, yeah, suffocated from the heat. Wow. And um, when we got down there, one girl had, had was alive because she was hiding under her mother's – we believe it was her mother's hijab. And she was the only one shielding herself from the sun. So she survived. And, uh, my buddy Sky Barkley and I, we jumped out from behind the tank and started dumping, uh, rounds into the ISIS positions that are like a hundred yards away, which is basically point blank range. They're right there. And, uh, David Eubank ran out and grabbed the little girl and then ran back behind the tank. We were also able to get one of the men, uh, successfully back and we started moving back. And I talk about the third man in the book and yeah. how, um, we were not able to save him and he ultimately died. Um, but We started moving back, and then immediately, uh, as as we're as we're moving backwards, a round just came out of nowhere, just a a burst of machine gun fire, just took my leg out from under me. And I knew, I I knew as soon as I was hit, I knew exactly what had happened. There was no, there was no shock, there was no surprise. I mean, I was startled, yes, but there was no shock. I knew exactly what had happened because um, we were all expecting to get shot. We were all expecting, okay, at some point one of us is going to take gonna a round. Shot, one,
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. Someone's going to eat it. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> so I got hit. I fell down behind this Iraqi army tank, which is backing up down the street and we can't tell it to stop. And it's like literally maybe five or six feet away from me. Oh, okay. So I'm wounded and I, ha- I have no choice but to stand up and keep moving. Um, cause I knew my team would, would die trying to get me out of there. I knew that. Right. And so I had no choice, but I got up and, uh, threw a tourniquet on and I was, and I talk about this in the book too, where I, as I'm putting the tourniquet on, I, I, I kind of stumble over the bodies of one of these little girls, Yeah. Uh, but I had her face blown off and she was right there. Like I could see her right there between my feet as I'm throwing this tourniquet on and I'm tired cause you know, the, the smoke is dissipating. I just can see us. I don't know if they know that I'm hit or not, but the rounds are still coming in. Okay. And, um, long story short, we ended up, we ended up making it back to, to Iraqi army positions. And, um, so to answer the second part of your question, yeah, a few days later, I was back in sort of in our safe house in Erbil, um, one of the cities there in Northern Iraq. And, um, one of the guys came in from the field, uh, a journalist who was out there, uh, by the name of Bernard. And, uh, he showed me some of the videos. He's like, Hey man, you got to look at these videos. And so it was the videos of the rescue. And so I had spent several days and several nights in pain, and just like re, by, basically by myself with other guys who weren't there on the rescue, right. trying to replay and trying to understand what had happened. Like where did I step? I didn't. I didn't remember if I had fallen down or not after I got shot. I didn't remember. I had no idea. Um, people always say like, oh, like when your when your adrenaline's going, everything slows down and you remember everything. Well, we were past the point of adrenaline, and yeah. you're in the point of just shock, and you. I, Now things are just starting to black out. You have no idea what happened. I don't fully remember what happened to the man who we didn't rescue. I I don't fully remember. I hope we can – hopefully one day we can see the drone footage Um, because the Americans were watching and did see us – did see the whole thing. But um, anyway, so it was very interesting to sit there and watch that stuff. And I remember just sitting there watching it. I was very numb. I was very numb to it all. But -hmm. a couple weeks later I got home to Wisconsin and a buddy of mine – Uh, A a fellow seal of mine, he texted me and he was like, hey, buddy, uh, check it out. You're trending on Reddit. And I was like, what are you talking about? So he sent me the link. And sure enough, the video of David running out and grabbing the little girl while Sky Barkley and I provided covering fire uh, had gone had gone viral and it was all over the place. Fox News, CNN, everyone was showing it. And um, it was it was very um, it's it's interesting because that was the worst day of my life in so many ways. And some of the worst moments of my life getting shot and, and, and all that stuff. And it was um, – it's, it's interesting for millions of people literally to have – literally tens of millions of people have seen this. And it's very interesting that they're sort of seeing what I went through. But I, I kind of see it as a uh, – I see it as an honor to represent
3: yeah.
2: the, the men and women who have gone through the same thing that I have and much worse. You know, you said your, your your late husband didn't make it home, and he's, he 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 did so much more than I ever than I he gave so much more than I ever could, and it's an honor to sort of represent the warriors who've who've gone before me and who do these things, and I'm just one small story of thousands and tens of thousands of, of brave and heroic acts that have been put out there. So that so it's kind of a bittersweet thing. It's a ter- yeah. it's terrible to relive it, but um, it's an honor to sort of represent. Um, the people who've gone before and have done the same things.
1: What is it like for your family? Like, and once again, I'm, I'm a mom. I said, same kids, same age, right? So I'm like, if I had to watch a video of my kid being shot, I think, I, I don't know. There's not enough tequila really to get me right through that. So, so I mean, what, what was, what is that like for them? My, of course.
2: My parents, they saw it, and of course, they teared up, and they they, yeah. they couldn't be more proud of me, though. Um, obviously, they're they're just they're sure. incredibly proud. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's difficult to to watch that. I think that's a question you'd have to ask ask my mom. But um, you know, is is interesting? I I, I I refer to my mom. She's the ultimate Spartan mother. Yeah, truly. I love that
1: you said that. Yeah, yeah
2: she she is. She's just yeah. absolutely phenomenal. You know, she's just a simple Midwestern lady homemaker who. When it comes time for her sons to go overseas and help other people, she says, you know, with tears in her eyes, all right, go help those people. She's never once asked me to back down. She's never once said, be safe, be careful, don't do what you got to do. She's never ever told me to, like, you know, don't be a hero. She's never said anything like that. She just says, go help these people, go do what you can do. These people need you with tears in her eyes. And that's, and and it's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing.
1: Yeah. That, yeah. that is a, a whole other level of strength and, and support amazing, yeah. to do that and to know. So I guess maybe for you being over there, knowing that your family felt that way, did that help you? Like,
3: you know, you I, describe
1: yeah, I, in that incident, like my family will understand and they know, and it seemed like that almost kind of brought you some peace knowing that they, they understand.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's part of it. But, but to be honest, when you're out there, you, I, I, I honestly, for, for me so much, I, I didn't really think about my family before I went in. Cause it was like, I, I did think about my, I thought about my family you know, in fleeting moments. And I was like, all right, like I talked about that in the book. I was like, okay. Right. But
3: yeah.
2: when it comes down to it, when the bullets start flying, you're not thinking about them at all. Right. You're thinking about the dude next to you and you're thinking about your mission. Um, but this is actually a funny thing. And I, I did not, I did not write this in the book. Um, but this was actually very funny. So after I got shot, I was in the ambulance getting driven back uh, to one of the field hospitals. This was right after I got shot, like yeah. right after it happened. Immediately after, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I text, I texted my mom cause I actually had cell phone service in Mosul. And so I texted oh my, my mom and I said, Hey mom, I don't like, don't freak out. But, um, I just got shot in the calf and I'm, I'm okay. Everything's fine. And then her response to me, like, this is hilarious. Her response to me was at least you didn't get shot in the bull. <laughs> Calf. I sit i, was get like, it. I was sitting there. I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is the most hilarious she... woman on the planet. And nobody like that was her response. Her response yep. to me was at least get shot in the bull. <laughs> And, uh, my brother was in Mosul at the time as well. Yeah. Um, he was helping like drive the ambulance, you know, not involved in the frontline fighting, but you know, he's involved in the ambulance and his ambulance was getting shot up all the time. And he, he's, he's an incredible hero as well because, and he, and he, but he had, he had no mil- prior military experience. So that's right. a whole nother attainment.
3: Yeah. Uh, but anyway,
2: she, she called, uh, she called him and was like, Hey, is he all right? Like what happened? Like, what's the real deal? You know? And he was yeah. able to tell her it's fine. He did just get shot in the calf, not in the bull. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. So yeah, oh, that's, <laughs> that's,
3: that's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is awesome. 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 A couple more things I want to get through some things, mm-hmm. some, you know, thoughts and insight that you offer in your book. You talk about coming home. And so I spent years working with veterans as a as a professional and then in the community that I've built up over the years, like it's what I do. And so I, I hear a lot of and I know a lot about PTS or PTS. Some people call it PTSD. Some people call it PTS. You are the first person that I've ever seen break it down into the two parts that you broke it down into. And for me, that is something I hope that everybody reads. And it just seems so clear when you when you wrote that, how you separated it between what you call, you know, shell shock. Like there's the two phases, like the, the first when you get back and you're Physically, you know, your body's there, but your brain needs to catch up, and it makes mm-hmm. so much sense how you describe that. Can you tell? Can you explain it in your own words rather than me just paraphrasing what you wrote?
2: Yeah, you know, yeah, in the absolutely, book? absolutely. Well, I think you were, you were already hitting it right there on the head. Yeah. So there's, you know, people always use the term PTSD, right? right. D stands for disorder, right. and what I talk about at the end of the book is. About how when I, when you come home, there's a, there's a readjustment period, right? You, you are, you are spending so much time as a soldier in an environment where people are trying to kill you and your body adapts to that. So you, your senses are heightened. Yeah. You sleep, you know, your sleep, you sleep a lot lighter, you know, things that may have uh, warned of danger in, in a war zone, like dogs barking, babies crying, different things like that, people screaming, you know, that was something that would have, you know, made you raise your rifle up and like get ready for a fight. And that's so. When when you come home, your your body has returned home from the war, mm-hmm. but it takes it takes your mind a little bit of time, and especially if you have just spent a year over in Iraq, right? You know, like some of these some of these guys have to like that's insane. And then they were supposed to come home and just everything's fine. Snap out of it, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's it's going to take some time. So I, I, my message to veterans is like, okay, that's completely normal. Okay, you're coming home. You're gonna you're gonna have headaches. It's gonna you know, you're gonna sleep lightly. You're gonna jump when you hear kids scream and dogs mm-hmm. bark, and if, if you hear an explosion, you're like guess what? You're you're probably gonna hit the ground because that's what you just did for a year, and that's totally natural. That'll right. eventually kind of go away. But the other side to that is something that I don't have. I don't know the proper medical term for it, and I've talked with other veterans, and so we, we use the term moral injury.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: When you were morally injured overseas, this is where the the real quote unquote PTSD comes from. This is like how, how does how does a soldier who is courageous and heroic in battle, come home and start hurting people who he loves? How does somebody who's survived so much come home and commit suicide? How is it that they're so disciplined but then all of a sudden they fall prey to drugs and alcohol? How does that happen? And it's because something called moral injury, and moral injury is something where they, on a moral level, were injured by what happened. And what I mean by that is they watched a friend die. They showed cowardice in battle and nobody knows about it. They have hatred for themselves or they have hatred for their enemy. They're angry at the enemy. They blame the enemy for their death of their friend or they blame their country or their commander or whoever for making a stupid call and sending them somewhere that they didn't want to go. And there's this damage that happens on, on, on the level of your soul that needs to be dealt with. And, and for me, what I believe it is, it, it simply comes down to it's one form of hatred or another and there's this sort of righteous indignation that guys return with when they come home from war and it's oh the enemy they're the savages and i hate them and you want to know what yeah like well, when we when we face them in battle yeah we're, we're going to throw down and we're we're going to crush them mm-hmm. but if you bring that hatred of the enemy home if you bring that hatred of yourself home if you bring the hatred of your your country or your commanding officer whoever made whatever decision that they made that you know caused the problems right That is going to eat you alive because guess what? We as humans cannot handle that. You know, there's that old uh, biblical saying, you know, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, right? That doesn't mean that you can't get revenge. That doesn't mean that justice can't be served. That simply means that the spirit of vengeance itself Mm -hmm. is something that you cannot handle. You have to let God handle that. And, you know, if you don't believe in God, like, bottom line, you just don't, don't let yourself harbor up a bunch of hatred, because guess what? You can't handle it. It will eat you alive. And so that's that's the real problem that guys have when they come home. I've seen terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Things that I can't even I, – I I won't repeat. Stuff I didn't right. even put in the book because it's so awful and terrible. But I sleep perfectly fine at night. I'm, there's a sadness there. There's a part of you that will never mm-hmm. return from the battlefield. Um, and I talk about that in the book. Like there's a sadness that's just never going to go away. Right. Like your innocence is lost. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you can still – become a functioning part of society and move on with your life and move on with peace. I have perfect peace about everything because at the end of the day, I gave up my hatred for the enemy. And, and as corny as it sounds, when I went into battle, I made the decision that I was going to fill my heart with love for the people who were standing behind me and not with hatred for the people who stood against me. And that's an extremely important thing that yeah. I, I think can really help a lot of guys. And I've, I've so since my book came out, Oh my goodness. I've gotten, I've gotten messages from so many grown men saying, Good. dude, I was crying when I read this. Thank you for this. This helped me. This is like, Oh my goodness. It makes so much sense now. Yes, Thank you. I'll work on this. You know? And that, that to me is like, that's why I wrote the book. I was like, boom, like that's, that's what I want. And yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's an incredible, uh, yeah, there's, there's an incredible message there at, at, at the end.
1: Yeah, there is. And like they said, I, I got to that part. I was like, Oh, damn man because you know the so the ripple effect that you may not know of that same message applies to so many people in extension you know beyond combat veterans it it a hundred percent applies to the families of those who are killed you know Mm. for me for me my husband was murdered by a fellow soldier right and then the military (laughs) let the guy go so there's a lot of hatred and i talk uh, a lot Mm. about that exact message that you somehow figured out while you were in in there doing it. Took, mm-hmm. took me personally years to to realize like that's what was destroying I had this hatred. Like in I mean it just it did destroy me. It it led mm-hmm. to decisions that destroyed my life. And I know so many other people who are going through the same thing, you know, even outside of the military, right? Terrible things happen all the time. People kill each other all the time. And there are families, people left behind and they're carrying on to hatred for something. And then you could trickle it down to somebody who cheated on you or whatever, but you know, like you can Absolutely. break that up into so many things. And so that message, while at a hundred percent spot on for combat veterans, it is something that extends to everybody, like whatever the hatred <laughs> is that you are hanging on to. And I think if you had started out the book with that message, maybe it'd be like, oh, that's a good message. Right. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you're so invested (laughs) in everything that's happening. And like, Mm I'm, I'm outraged for everything that happened over there. Right. And I was like angry Mm -hmm. when I'm reading this book. Right. And then (laughs) I, and then I get to that part and said, oh, you know, he's right. And it kind of, It was so beautifully done and and laid out in that sequence that it needed to be laid out. in. so that's the message that I hope that everybody gets to. Uh, I'm going to hold up this book another time. We're going to talk about one more thing. But this is your book, City of Death. And you wrote it with Scott McEwen. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would highly recommend everybody go pick up this book. I'm going to throw out there. If somebody wants to leave us a podcast review on this episode, tell us what impacted them the most. I'll buy a copy of this book and I'll send it to them for them. I'll do that for the first five people that leave a review on this particular episode. I'll mail them a copy of your book because I think it's so important uh, to... I, I just love this book I love and I love, I love the story. I mean, I hate it and I love it at the same time. Yeah, but yeah. but before we go, I want to give you a chance to talk about the work that you're doing today. Cause you didn't even just stop now.
3: No,
2: you're,
1: no. I, I mean, the work you're doing today was, is it white mountain research?
2: Yes. I, I'm technically like, employed by the white mountain research. We work for okay. um, the Nazarene fund.
1: Okay. So, mm-hmm. Go ahead and talk about that because that's, that is something else that people, we have no idea this stuff exists. Like nobody knows this stuff is happening unless you're directly involved. So it's absolutely so
2: cool. Absolutely. So yeah. what's, what, what I do now is I'm the East Asia operations manager for the Nazarene Fund. The Nazarene Fund is a organization that was started by Glenn Beck, okay. um, that was helping to rescue people from ISIS and still continues to rescue and repatriate people from ISIS. And they're, they're getting back literally ISIS slaves and they've, conducted operations to get these people out. Um, I now run the East Asia portion of that. So they've expanded into Burma. So I'm actually now working over in Burma, um, helping with the ethnic minorities over there who are being massacred. And, uh, there's all sorts of genocide. It, It doesn't end. It's, it's continuing on. And so as the, as I now, the Nazarene fund sent me over there to, um, to, to help and set up operations there. So we're, uh, you know, we're in the jungle, we're there with these people in the middle of uh, in the middle of the worst of circumstances yeah. and we're helping them to defend themselves. We're helping to get them aid and uh, whatever it is that they need to help survive. And I can't go I can't go into too much detail sure. on it um, just because of operational security and stuff yep. like that. But suffice it to say um, it's it's similar stuff uh, to to the book City of Death did over there. that
1: so, goes on. If somebody sitting here listening to this or reading your story wants to somehow help towards the same end that you're working on, how is that possible?
0: Well, a,
2: a couple things that they can do. One is, first of all, share the message, share what's going on. Yeah. Um, social media is, is such an important and powerful thing. I, it's funny. I made a post a few days ago um, in response to some, some comments from a, a yes. media person. And it's like, it's blowing up. Like there's yeah. just this morning, I have like 150 new likes. on it. just insane, tens of thousands of shares and so yeah. social media is extremely important. Speak the truth. Tell what's, tell what's going on. So that's one thing you can do. The other thing is obviously you can give. So for example, like the Nazarene fund, we mm-hmm. are, we run completely off of donations from people and we have, you know, and, and of all organizations I've worked with, the Nazarene fund uses money the most appropriate of any organization I've ever seen and okay. worked with. And I've worked with Good probably about a dozen yeah. now. They, mm-hmm. they use it extremely well. Not that other organizations don't, but we use it extremely well. Um, and so for example, you know, this operation that's going on in Burma, instead of instead of sending a full team of fifteen people to go do it, they send me. That's it. I'm the only person. So oh that God. keeps costing that keeps costs way, way down. And then oh. I work with the local population okay. to get them up and running so they can help themselves. So it's it's a very, very good program that I truly believe in and and, and that's why I do what I do. Yeah. So where um, can so people
1: where can people find that online to donate
2: the Nazarenefund.org. Nazarene. dot okay and Yep, there's all kinds okay. of stuff on there about our missions and kind of what we're doing. And then um, if if other people want to reach out to me personally and mm-hmm. sort of talk um, off the record about things in a little bit more detail, I'm um, I'm 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 always open for that as well. So they can find me on Facebook or
1: yeah, awesome. Yeah, you, know, you are very responsive. You know, that's I know many was joking, threatening you to get you to you know respond to me, but you did respond like you were <laughs> like super, you were super responsive, and I I find that also so impressive, especially when you're getting swamped. One last thing before we ask our last two questions: uh, There is you touched on it the divisiveness in here and the comments that were said online, or you know, or by the by the news media that you responded mm-hmm. to. What do you think can be done to kind of put an end or kind of mitigate the huge divisiveness on both? You know, both sides are kind mm-hmm. of culpable of just feeding this funnel of just ridiculousness that's happening out here. It doesn't matter which sense. So what is something that you could take from maybe your experiences? If you had a message for American people, like how to kind of Nick this,
2: my, my, my response would be this. And actually it's funny. I just this morning, I got a message from somebody saying, how do I respond to these people? Um, and my response is this two things. One is continue to speak truth. Mm -hmm. Okay. And make sure that what you're saying is true. Make sure you know why you're saying what you're saying. So continue to use social media and things like that to, to speak truth. But then with that being said, the other part of that is do it kindly, be kind. You can be passionate. you can be um, you, know, you can be hard and, and stern on what you believe. The response I wrote the other day was it was, it was harsh, but it was it fair. Was, yes. And I did not insult anybody. I didn't attack anybody. And so I think one of the biggest things that we can do is when, when you disagree with somebody, that's fine. Have a disagreement, have an argument, let it get a little bit heated. That's okay but what's what's important though is that you don't let it get out of hand and you do not insult the other person you do not attack the other person right. because that's that immediately turns them off to any mm-hmm. argument that you just said you might have 10 facts that prove them completely wrong but as soon as you call them a name right. their their walls go up and they're not going to listen to you anymore so respond with truth and kindness both both are both are extremely important
1: Perfect. Okay. We talk a lot about the American dream here at American snippets is what we focus on. And we think that everybody has their own version of the American dream. It's what people like you give so much so that people like me can go forward and find it. What does that term the American dream mean to you?
2: Well, I think the American, to me, the American dream is, is freedom. It's the ability to do whatever it is that you want to do. And there, there are going to be obstacles in your life. There are going to be things that, you know, that stop you from having that business or, you know, being able to spend time with your kids or whatever it is, there's going to be obstacles to these things. But to me, the American dream is the freedom and liberty as an individual work and do whatever you need to do to improve your situation And and all these other countries and all these other places that I go to the individual liberty that people have is, is so non-existent. And, you know, as Americans, just the ability to choose and, and pursue whatever your, personal dream is for me. Like, I honestly, like, I don't really have a personal dream because for me, I'm so busy fighting. My, my dream is that you can all do your dream. That's honestly, that's my dream. Cause I'm like, yeah. I'm so that's, that, that's what I do. And my, my dream is just that, um, that we maintain our liberties. And I think that they are definitely under attack right now, um, in a, in a very vehement way. Yes. And so it's important to stand up for those things. But American dream is just about you, you being able to do what, what you want to do. And and I I get to do what I want to do and I I love it. And it's a, it's a good fit.
1: Awesome. Ephraim, thank you so, so much for all you've done, all you do, and for taking the time to sit down with us today. So, so appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, everyone that wraps up this episode of America's Tippets. Thank you so much for tuning in. would also like to personally thank Ephraim Mattis for joining us on today's show. That is uh, just a, That story is kind of hard to wrap your brain around. Uh, It's amazing. And if you enjoyed uh, Ephraim's story, you got some value out of today's episode, you wanna learn more about Ephraim, you wanna follow him uh, and read the full article that we did on him and his story, uh, just head on over to American Snippets and check out episode number 71. It'll be the featured episode this week. And do not forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Remember, we're offering um, to give out Ephraim Mattis' book, The City of Death, to the first five people that leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we will uh, purchase this book and send it out to you directly. So if you want a copy of Ephraim Mattis' book, The City of Death, go on to iTunes and leave us a review. Don't forget to share this episode on social media. You can find us on, America, on uh, Instagram, Facebook, at American Snippets. And remember, don't let our stories just inspire you let them propel you into action in your own life. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. We'll see you next week.